right, welcome to this week's episode of Mythic Existence, and I've got a great one in store for you. This might be our best episode yet. We are going to be discussing what is called the procession of the equinoxes and their relation to ancient myths. Simply put, procession is the changing of the position of the stars overhead due to the spin of Earth's axis. However, this cycle has shown up in myths as the various ages of civilization that resulted in higher and lowered states of consciousness. We are going to be discussing two books, Hamlet's Mill, which argues that myths were used to encode astronomical knowledge, and Lost Star of Myth and Time, which argues that there might be something out there in space that causes us to enter into these altered states of consciousness. So buckle up for another mind-blowing episode of Mythic Existence. Well, I'm back to recording YouTube videos for the podcast. If you're watching the video, um, I don't have my old studio where I was in front of the nice bookshelves. Um, I moved from Utah to Colorado, and I've got a little bit more of a sophisticated setup. I've got this new microphone, so uh, I you know, threw up some metaphysical decorations. Uh, and I wish that I had the bookshelf behind me, but I couldn't really work this one out. But... Today we've got a great episode in store, and it's a lot of the episodes we talk about, we we cover some kind of arcane subjects that you probably haven't heard a lot about. So one of the biggest tasks I have, I think, is familiarizing the audience with these sort of bigger ideas. So um, we're going to be talking about procession which I kind of introduced in in the little introduction spiel that I had. And I'm going to get into exactly what that is and how procession showed up in these myths. And this, this episode is going to be kind of based around a couple of books, like I said, one of which is Hamlet's Mill, which for our video listeners uh, is right here. Hamlet's Mill, it's this incredible book, was written by Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha von Dechend. And uh, de Santillana was a historian of science at MIT. And von Dechend was an ethnologist at uh, Johann Goethe University in, in Germany, I believe. And they came together and they wrote this book. And the, the second book is Lost Star of Myth and Time, which was written by... Uh, Walter Crittenden, and he kind of followed up in the footsteps of what they had done in Hamlet's Mill and tried to figure out exactly what was the cause of this procession cycle. So before we get into everything, I want to introduce two ideas before we get into really defining what procession is and looking at how it shows up in these myths and what the repercussions are for it. But The first thing I want to say is that myth and folklore are scientific languages. That's one of the things that Hertha von Dechend uh, posited in this book. So she had been studying myth and folklore, and she basically was like, they don't make any sense. Um, And eventually she, she looked at two Polynesian temples that were on these remote islands and she didn't know what they were, but they were they were connected to mythology and uh, the the folklore of the area. And what she realized is that one of the islands was directly on the Tropic of Cancer, and the other was on the Tropic of Capricorn. So 
at the you know we have two astronomical significances capricorn and cancer and there's no reason else why you would have these observatories there unless they had some kind of astronomical significance and they must have had some tie to the mythology and folklore because they they clearly did in their historical um and you know ethno ethnographic background so she started looking further into these myths and folklore and she realized that uh the planets were gods and that the animals were stars or constellations so that's kind of what tipped her off and began her journey her journey into uh you know writing hamlet's mill and so that's point number one myth and folklore are scientific languages the the purpose uh, one of the purposes of this mythology and this folklore was to encode knowledge that these civilizations had a second thing is that procession and was represented by a mill and this was a recurrent theme in mythology and folklore so there kept on being this mill that was coming up um you know like a mill that that churns uh you know water or salt or whatever it is like a, a, a mill uh and it kept on coming up and it was tied to procession so that's where the name hamlet's mill comes from and uh we're going to get into why is it called hamlet's mill what is this character hamlet is that shakespeare's hamlet yes it is um so this was a mill that turned and actually creates time in mythology and folklore and eventually this mill ends up breaking which caused civilization to deteriorate and fall apart and one example of the, these turners of the mill is Fenja and Menja, who are two giants that had to turn the mill from the Ada. So, the main point, just to give you the, the, the main points of both of these books, to reiterate them, Hamlet's Mill, they discovered that procession was encoded in mythology and folklore, including the Ada, the Kalevala, the Mahabharata, the Bible, and Iranian epics, and this figure came down to us as Hamlet. So Hamlet from Shakespeare's Hamlet is this character who was the owner of the mill that showed up in all of these epics, which is just incredible to, th to think that this character, um, I mean, Hamlet is kind of the cornerstone of Western literature, and it goes far more ancient, far older than that. And there's deep astronomical and scientific implications of that character. And then in Lost Star of Myth and Time, the author, he tried to figure out what was the cause of procession and what is called the Yuga cycle. And I'm going to go super into what the Yugas are, but basically... So let me uh, let me define procession for you, okay? So and the procession and the yuga cycle are tied together. Basically, because the 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 Earth spins on its axis the way that it does, it causes the the stars and the constellations to move throughout. Uh, change their position in the sky for us so it's called the procession of the equinoxes because on the equinox every year the stars will be 
in a different point. And so there's this 24,000 year cycle, they say, where, uh, you know, if you go through the cycle, the same star will be in the same place at the end of it. And they, there's this concept called the yuga cycle. And there's these four different yugas. Uh, there's the Kali Yuga, the Dwapara Yuga, the Treta Yuga, and the Satya Yuga. And each of those are a different age that civilization goes through as we pass through our procession cycle. And this, it's a 24, there's, I've seen different numbers. It's somewhere between 24 and 26,000 years that we go through on this, this procession cycle. And as we do, we pass through these different yugas. And the yugas correspond to different ages of civilization. So the Kali Yuga is the Iron Age. Uh, the Dwapara Yuga is the Bronze Age. And the Treta Yuga is the Silver Age. And the Satya Yuga is the Golden Age of civilization. And so... The, this concept of yugas and procession is that something is causing us to have a different state of consciousness depending on which yuga we are in. And uh, that's what they call, they call you, the yuga in, that's a, a Vedic term. Uh, that's something that we've inherited from, from uh, the Indian subcontinent. But as I'll go through... Plenty of different civilizations had their names for the Yuga. So Plato uh, wrote about this this cycle, and uh, we call it either the, the Platonic year or the Great Year is what this giant procession cycle is. Uh, the Egyptians and the Greco-Roman Mithraics had references to the Great Year in their temples and in their arts. The Hopis spoke of it in their legends. The Mayans considered it a basic measurement of time, so the, the Mayan calendar is tied into the Yuga cycle. And then, yeah, the Hindus, the, the, the Indus Valley civilization, they called it the Yuga cycle. So hopefully that gives you an idea to what procession is and what the Yuga cycle is. Just to reiterate, procession is the changing of the stars overhead based on our position in time and space. And the Yuga cycle are these different ages of civilization that are caused based on the passing of the procession cycle. So to give you uh, more detail about the the Yugas themselves in these ages, um, the Iron Age, the Kali Yuga, okay? So... Um, actually, before I go before I go into that, I want to say, in this yuga cycle, there's an ascending and descending um, parts parts of the cycle. So it starts with the golden age. Well, I mean, it it could start at any time, but let's say we start with the golden age. We pass from this golden age to the silver age, then to the bronze age then to the Iron Age, and then it goes back. Bronze Age, Silver Age, Golden Age. So there's two ages um, throughout every, uh, you know, Yuga cycle. And the Iron Age, also called the Kali Yuga, lasts for 1,200 years. This is the worst of the Yugas, the worst of the ages. 
It's the age of darkness. It's when mankind is ignorant. I, I don't like saying mankind. Sorry. Humanity is ignorant of their glorious past. Uh, th- this time we live as uh, material beings. We're firmly planted in the material world and existence. War, disease, and famine run rampant. Greed, intoxication, and overindulgence are characteristics of this this part of the cycle, and it, it lasts for twelve hundred years. It's said. Then, we have the Bronze Age or the Dwapara Yuga, and this lasts for twenty four hundred years. And according to Cruttenden, the we are currently in the Bronze Age. Uh, this. And he got this information from Sri Yukteswar in The Holy Science, a book that was published in the 1800s. And uh, apparently the Bronze Age, the Dupara Yuga, began in 1699. So we still have 2,400 more years in the Bronze Age. But at this point, the fog of materialism begins to lift. Humanity discovers that they are more than flesh and bones. We realize that we are energy forms. Great civilizations come about. They're less spiritual than the Golden and Silver Age. But at this point in time, we, we begin to understand that all matter is an expression of energy. Um, of energy, vibratory forces, and uh, electrical attributes. So, for me, you know, I think that Einstein played a big role in the, the lifting us out of the Kali Yuga, which corresponded to the Dark Ages of... European history at least but this also I mean the 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 Kali Yuga wasn't great for a lot of civilization especially towards the end I mean you saw the the collapse of the the Inca and the Maya and all these amazing Mesoamerican civilizations um I mean there it was a it, it was a time of suffering all across the planet a lot of it was caused by the Europeans but um, still, it's interesting that there is a bit of a correspondence there. And then the Silver Age, called the Treta Yuga, we become more less material, far less material. There's great advances in science and art. Humanity begins to live in harmony with the subtle forces and the natural rhythms of the universe. Um, life becomes a balance between the feminine and the masculine, and we begin to understand the oneness of all things. So uh, that's the Treta Yuga. And uh, then finally, we have the Golden Age or the Satya Yuga. And this is a primordial paradise, a literal Garden of Eden. And we'll see the Garden of Eden actually figures in to this whole story. Very interestingly, um, there's there's some incredible things with the Garden of Eden and Hamlet. Uh I'm still trying to work through how much Shakespeare knew about the procession cycle. But, I mean, he used the story of Hamlet and he had, uh, you know, he had stories about all of these things about the procession inside of his. I mean, he literally, he had very clear references to, to the procession cycle in Hamlet. And I'll get into that. Um but this golden age, it's an age of enlightenment, of abundance. There's no struggle. We come to realize that we're spiritual beings composed of ideas and energy and that we're in a physical body as this spiritual energy uh, that 
is tied into the entire you know oneness of the universe and it's a period of divine knowledge and wisdom and that lasts for 4800 years so luckily we get a long time with the golden age but the golden age is on both ends of this yuga cycle so the two golden ages are spread out pretty far apart from each other so it's it's so interesting because we have references to this cycle and the procession uh the the procession cycle in so many different cultures for example we have the greeks and the romans they spoke of the golden age they, they spoke of this golden silver bronze and iron ages we see this in ovid's metamorphosis that's one of the very beginning stories that is in ovid's great tome of mythology is the 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 various ages so it shows the importance that that concept held um and then hesiod also spoke of a golden age where there is a time of gods that was nearly perfect when there is no toil no misery no old age it was an abundant good life the egyptians had this concept of the zeptefi which was similar to the greek the greek golden age and they actually aligned their edifices and their structures to these celestial alignments. Uh, the Sphinx actually would point directly to Leo uh, 10,500 years ago. And uh, it's interesting because the, uh, the, the center shaft of the Great Pyramid pointed to uh, the pole star Draconis instead of Polaris. And so that's part of this whole story is that apparently our pole star has changed over time and that has caused us to go out of this alignment. That's at least something that sort of appears um, in, in Hamlet, at least. The Hindus in the Rig Veda, they, the, the Rig Veda contained descriptions of the procession cycle. And that's one of the oldest texts ever. And uh, part of this is we we have this um belief in you know western civilization is that these older cultures weren't supposed to have knowledge of this stuff of you know this advanced astronomy and this advanced knowledge but they set up you know viewing stations to keep track of it so it's they def they had knowledge of it they they were tracking it they probably actually would know it better than the average person today and part of one thing that you have to also know and this is something that the authors of the Hamlet's Mill speak of, is that there were these, these historic geniuses in the ancient past. There was Newtons and Einsteins and Shakespeare's that lived 10,000 years ago. So, um, you know, that, that sort of intelligence is something that is not specific to any time or place. So this, these, these incredible geniuses of the past could have conceived of this type of thing. Uh, the Zoroastrians and the Zendavesta, they spoke of the 24,000-year cycle. The laws of Manu um, contained descriptions of this, the Yuga cycle. And um, so the, the Indus Valley and the, the Near East, they had references. The Bible has references to this. There's King Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, in which he, he saw this, 
this body compi- composed of gold and silver and iron and bronze. And he had the dream interpreted. And basically the, the, the dream interpreter said that, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your civilization is going to come to an end. Your, your, your reign as king is going to come to an end at some point. And so that's a foretelling of the, the, the Iron Age coming, you know. And, I mean, Shakespeare has references to King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's something that definitely Shakespeare was, was on to, I would say. Like I said, the Mayans had similar cycles in their sacred long count calendar. And some scholars actually argued that the calendar is based on the procession cycle. So that's where some of these, uh, that's where the procession cycle and the the concept of yugas and these different ages that occurs cross culturally over vast uh, vast cultures. And that's one thing that's really interesting about it, this is that they all were encoding this knowledge into mythology and art and architecture. And uh, it's just quite interesting, really. So I want to get into our discussion of Hamlet's Mill, the book itself. So the main point, like I said, is that mythology, folklore, and fable encode knowledge of the procession cycle and the great cycle itself. And it draws its name from old myths that compare the motions of the earth to a mill. So like I've said, this this mill is this concept. And the mill, to me, is the procession cycle itself. It's the, it's the thing turning in the sky that is creating the harmony or the balance or the imbalance on earth. Um, and so, you know, just as the, as the stars move around in the sky, so does the earth move like a mill. So... This character Hamlet, uh, in the Norse Edda, Hamlet was known as Amlodi. And Amlodi was an owner of a mill. And in, in the Edda, it says that in the old days, the mill ground out peace and plenty. But in the decaying days, it ground out salt. And at one point, the mill broke and is now at the bottom of the ocean, churning out a whirlpool called the Maelstrom. So... We have this whirlpool also that occurs in these myths and folklore when it's out of time. And so if you think about Homer um, and Scylla and Charybdis in the Odyssey, there's there's references. Homer definitely knew about this procession cycle too. Uh, and it's it's interesting to keep in mind that Homer wasn't just one individual, right? Homer was... Uh, the uh, Homer's stories were passed down orally and then eventually written down so the greeks and the romans they over time encoded this knowledge into their stories and it's it's a way to make sense of what's actually going on um and like i said there's these two giants fenja and menja that turn the mill because it can't be budged by human force so we have to wonder who are fenja and menja what are they um, the ancients referred to the stars as gods, so it's definitely possible that uh, they're actually stars, Fenja and Menja. Well, and we ha- they, they didn't work out what stars they are, and Cruttenden, he, he puts some theories forced, uh, forward to what stars are behind the 
the changing of consciousness? Because that's one of the big questions. Like, if procession is real, and if these cycles are real, well, we know procession is real. It's scientific. But if changes in civilization arise because of procession, why is that? And one of the thoughts is that there's some kind of star, some kind of electromagnetic field out there that changes the way our uh, our thoughts occur, basically. So I want to read uh, a quote from the... It's the very beginning of the introduction of the book, and it clears a lot of stuff up. So uh, this is the introduction to Hamlet's Mill. They say... This is meant to be only an essay. It is a first reconnaissance of a realm well-nigh unexplored and uncharted. From whichever way one enters it, one is caught in the same bewildering circle complexity, as in a labyrinth, for it has no deductive order in the abstract sense, but instead resembles an organism tightly closed in itself, or even better, a monumental art of the fugue. The figure of Hamlet as a favorable starting point came by chance. Many other avenues offer themselves, rich in strange symbols and beckoning with great images. But the choice went to Hamlet because he led the mind on a truly inductive quest through a familiar landscape, and one which has the merit of its literary setting. Here is a character deeply present to our awareness, in whom ambiguities and uncertainties Tormented self-questioning and dispassionate insight give a presentiment of the modern mind. His personal drama was that he had to be a hero, but still tried to avoid the role destiny assigned him. His lucid intellect remained above the conflict of motives. In other words, his was and true is a truly contemporary consciousness. And yet this character whom the poet made one of us the first unhappy intellectual, concealed a past as a legendary being, his features predetermined, pre-shaped by long-standing myth. There is a numinous aura around him, and many clues led to him, but it was a a surprise to find behind the mask an ancient and all-embracing cosmic power, the original master of the dreamed first age of the world. Yet, in all his guises, he remains strangely himself, the original Amlodi, as his name was in the Icelandic legend, shows, a, shows the same characteristics of melancholy and high intellect. He, too, is a son dedicated to avenge his father, a speaker of cryptic but inescapable truths, an elusive carrier of fate who must yield once his mission is accomplished and sink once more into concealment in the depths of time to which he belongs, lord of the golden age, the once and future king. So, I mean, that's some great writing. First off, we just got to say that's some great writing. But we see some of these characteristics that present themselves throughout these stories. It's a withdrawn character, a tormented genius who has a father that dies and he's trying to seek revenge. That occurs in all of these stories. Um that have this Hamlet character, but it's, it's interesting. Two things I want to talk about is one that he's, uh, the Lord of the golden age, the once and future King. And 
that's that that once in future king i think is kind of key to all of this because it's a promise of a return and that's the return of the golden age coming back that's the once in the future king um and i i I think when we when we see characters like that disappearing uh like quetzalcoatl like king arthur then we can key off and that ties into the second point that they're saying that this is only a first reconnaissance. There's more work to be done here. Um, and so I want all of us mythologists and folklorists, if you're interested in this type of thing, we need to find where else is Hamlet in mythology and folklore? Where else is this character? Where else is the mythology uh, encoded in procession? Um, because that, there's a lot to be a lot to be uncovered. So there's that. And I want to go further a little bit into Hamlet and the, 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 the role that Shakespeare's Hamlet plays in this. Um, there's a man named Mather Walker who's written some more arcane Shakespeare essays that I, I just love. And he says that Hamlet is about the doctrine of the microcosm which is this concept as above, so below, which is something that's inherent in uh, this this concept of the procession cycle, that, that what's happening above is a reflection of bo- what's happening below and that they're both co-mutually affecting each other. So uh, that's what Hamlet is about, is this doctrine of the microcosm that um, we are out of touch with our natural selves because of our place in the procession cycle. And one quote that really keys us off into uh, Shakespeare actually having knowledge of the procession cycle comes during the the mousetrap scene where there's the play that Hamlet sets up to try and catch the conscience of the king. And the player king in the play, he says, Full thirty times hath Phoebus' cart gone round, Neptune's, Neptune's salt wash and Tellus's orbit ground, and thirty dozen moons with borrowed sheen about the world have twelve or have times twelve's thirties been. Since love our hearts and hymen did our hands unite co-mutual in most sacred bands. So it's all about that times 1230s bean or bin i like saying bean because it rhymes with sheen but this is a reference to the 12 signs of the zodiac that each path pass through the 30 degrees of this 26,000 year cycle so we got 12 times 30 260 um yeah 260 but it's this 26,000 year cycle um and we have we have this. It's also interesting that that play is also about the serpent in the Garden of Eden because he, the um, the king gets killed by this his his brother who is depicted as a serpent. And I want to read you this quote from Walker. He said, "The story was associated with the legends of the Golden Age and with those great motifs of myth having to do with the World Tree." The Ash Yggdrasil in the in the Ada, the world darkening oak of the Kalevala, Pharisides' world oak draped with the starry mantle, 
They even realized that the story, speaking they is of uh, the authors of Hamlet's Mill, that the story was associated with the Garden of Eden and with the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. They neglected to emphasize the tree on which the golden apples grew in the Garden of Hesperides. This tree included two additional features of the Garden of Eden story. It not only grew in a garden, there's also a serpent connected with it. The Eden of the most ancient Egyptian mythology was a circumpolar paradise. The Garden of Hesperides was also in the extreme north. Numerous writers on star lore identified the dragon which guarded the golden apples in the Garden of Hesperides as the constellation Draconis. Draconis was the pole constellation about the time of the Eden story was supposed to have taken place and would have been located in the topmost area of the branches of the world tree. In ancient astronomical mythology, Draconis was the old serpent, the evil one. Draconis is related to the stories of the fallen angels in the books of Genesis and Enoch. A number of authorities on astronomical mythology have claimed Draconis represented the tempter in the Eve in the Garden of Eden. Of Eve in the Garden of Eden. So there's a lot to unpack there, but basically it's it has to do with the pole star changing from Draconis to Polaris. And this is more of this labyrinth that we have to go down. Once we find these trees and serpents and gardens, that's also talking about procession myths. So um, I want to give an idea. So there is a lot there. That, that's kind of Hamlet's thing. But I want to give uh, some examples of other places where the t- this Hamlet character has occurred. So... Shakespeare got his information about Hamlet from Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum, and that's where the story of Amleth is kept. And he switched around the letters to make it Hamlet. And Amleth came from Amlodi, who was a character in the Norse myths, like I've said. And he was this brooding intellectual trying to avenge his father, uh, like they were talking about in that quote that I read from you from Hamlet's myth, Hamlet's Mill. So Amlodi is from the Ada, and then in the Finnish story, the Kalevala, we have this figure Kalervo, and like Hamlet, and like Amlodi, Kalervo uh, has this father that was killed by his uncle. He's trying to avenge this death, but there's something interesting here also because Kalervo apparently was in love with his sister. Uh, it, well, he was unwittingly in love with her. So it was kind of like an Oedipus situation, but with his sister. And in Hamlet's Mill, they kind of say that that there must there might have been something going on with Hamlet and Ophelia in this situation. Uh, Hamlet says, Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? And then he said, I loved Ophelia. Forty thousand brothers could not with all their quantity of love make up my son. So I, I don't think that Hamlet and Philia were brother and sister. I mean, I know that they weren't in the the surface level of the play, but there, there might have been something deeper going on there. There's more to unpack there. And then in Iran, we have this epic called the Shanama with a hero named Kai Kusro. And in this, we also have a serpent in the garden and uh, this character retreats and goes away. And so... Uh, it, this is the once in the future king again 
And like I said, that might be the returning golden age. We have the Indian Mahabharata, this, uh, the Indian epic. And in this, uh, we have a, the character called Yudhisthira, who is the eldest of the five Pandavas. He becomes weary of the world and he decides to retire to try and, um, and obtain his sovereignty through pilgrimage. So it's another, he's retreating from the world. And his brothers, among them Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita, join him. And um, it's clearly stated in the Mahabharata that this battle, it's this great battle between warring cousin factions. And um, it, it says that it takes place on the cusp of the Dwapara and the Kali Yuga. And that the Kali Yuga actually commences when Krishna is shot in the only vulnerable part of his body. Well, what does that make you think of? Makes me think of Achilles. And so in in uh, the Iliad, we have Achilles who retreats. He goes away from battle. It's a similar thing. He's, his return is promised. And then the end is uh, consolidated by his return. So, And that was also um, a war among among cousins, uh, in a certain respect. And then in the Odyssey, we have Zeus, uh, we have Odysseus praised to Zeus at the island of Ithaca, and Zeus sends him a woman who was a grinder at the mill. So that's one of the main ways that this grinder and this mill occurs in the Odyssey, along with the, um, you know, the, the, the skill in Charybdis scene. And also Odysseus could be this once and future king, returning also makes you think of lord of the rings the return of the king um and then the the bible we also have besides nebuchadnezzar's dream we have samson who was said to be uh he ground away eilis and gaza at the mill with slaves and there's references to samson in shakespeare as well um so yeah the 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 main ideas we have is that this mill peg breaks loose that causes the earth to tilt off axis and that throws us out of the golden age um, and that the mill falls into the sea and causes a whirlpool. So that's that's how the story of Hamlet appears in many different places. Finland, uh, Iran, you know, uh, we have Quetzalcoatl, we have Greece, we have... Iceland, I mean, it's all over. And it's similar things. It's, you know, this brooding intellectual and this mill are two of the main things to look for. So that kind of concludes our uh, discussion of Hamlet's Mill. Now I want to get into uh, Walter Cruttenden's Lost Star of Myth and Time. And Cruttenden was consciously following up in the footsteps of um, Von Dechend and De Santillana. At this point in time, Crendon is the director of the, I think it's called the Binary Star Research Institute. So he's he's researching binary stars. And the main concept he's dealing with is, what is the cause of the yugas? What is causing us to have these various states of consciousness? And his main, uh, his main thing that he throws out there is that maybe as we move through space were carried through some kind of region that affects the ionosphere or the magnetosphere or the atmosphere. Uh, 
So that's what he's kind of doing. He's, he's looking for something that's causing this. And he talks about how there's references to it's either a star or a planet, depending on the the place that it comes up in called Nibiru. Um, and that is in Sumerian mythology especially, but it's also apparent in Mithraic and Vedic traditions. And he says that this might be the star that drives procession. And that's what he's looking for is what is driving procession? Um, he speaks about how in Mithraism, their god Mithras was thought of as a second or unseen hypercosmic sun. So he was, he, he was thinking that maybe, you know, Mithras is this procession driver. And Mithras is definitely connected to this cycle um, because he's depicted always killing a bull. So that shows his power over procession, specifically the killing of Taurus. Um, and it's really interesting also to just track what is the most important, like, astrological figure astronomical figure in these cultures i mean taurus they had bull worship in egypt at the time mithra mithras and and taurus leo and the lion this with the sphinx in egypt you can look at religious iconography to figure out is what's going on and it's also it's interesting that uh jesus was Jesus right now we're in the age of Pisces we're tra- we're transitioning to the age of Aquarius and Jesus is depicted as a fish and a fisherman you know there's a lot of fish iconography with Jesus and that's another thing is that we have this yuga cycle with these four different yugas but then we pass through the 12 different signs of uh the zodiac as we go through the yuga cycle um, one thing that Cruttenden throws far, uh, forth is that we might actually be in a binary star system. And that might be, you know, hard to fathom considering that that's, that, you know, we, we think that we're in a single star system. But apparently like 80% of stars are actually in binaries. Um, and so if we had a binary star, it would have to be a brown dwarf a brown dwarf or an old neutron star. Um, a brown dwarf, what it is, it's it's a it's something that hasn't gotten big enough to actually have fusion occur inside of it. But it, it's something that would be harder to detect for sure, a neutron star or a brown dwarf. Um, and then these researchers at the University of Louisiana and at Cal Berkeley, they, they did research into a star called Nemesis. And they said that these extinction events were caused by a binary star to our sun, that which they called Nemesis. So that's one concept is that maybe, you know, I mean, picture the sun and its star, its binary star, they, they get closer and further away. So maybe when they're like closest together is when it's the golden age and when they're farthest apart is the iron age. Um and then he also speaks about this, the serious conundrum. Um, so if you don't know about this, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's one of the most fascinating things, I think. So there's a tribe in Africa called the Dogons. They're in Mali. And they knew about a, a small binary star system called the Sirius, Sirius A and B. 
And Sirius B is, we just were able to detect it. But the Dogons knew about it hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And they they weren't really astronomical, astronomically inclined like, you know, these Polynesians or, you know, whoever. They said that they actually got their information from these star gods that came down in the form of dolphins. Um, and there's these French anthropologists that went through and got the information from them, um, I think in the 1900s, maybe the 1800s. But... The, the the whole thing about Sirius is really interesting, and that's one of the things that Cruttenden throws forward, that maybe maybe Sirius has is the star that is driving procession. Uh, the Egyptians were obsessed with Sirius. They, they celebrated the heliacal rising of Sirius, which heralded the rising of the Nile. And Sirius was said to be the star of Isis. And Isis, of course, was the companion to Osiris. So this was a sacred star. The shaft of the Great Pyramid pointed to Sirius. And um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, this kind of, this ties in, Gilgamesh was said to be drawn to a heavy star described as having a potent essence and being the god of heaven. So, um, you know, Gilgamesh, there's, there's astronomical knowledge in that story as well. So, but the main thing that he's throwing forward is that magnetic fields change the way we interact and perceive the world and maybe there might be some kind of star out there that is driving this change um and that's something that they've they've scientifically studied is that different magnetic fields alter our brain and the way that we're able to interact with reality so for example at ucla they have this thing called the mu room And here, Dr. Valerie Hunt, she changed electromagnetic frequencies in the room, and it caused the the subjects to burst into tears and to sob uncontrollably. But when they did, they they reported a massive uh, expansion of consciousness, which is really interesting. And then, I mean, we have seasonal um, seasonal depression, which is paced. It's a depression that comes based on different time and space. Um, and then there's a man named Dr. Joe, Joe, John Joe McFadden. Uh, he came up with this thing called semi theory and it's conscious electromagnetic field theory. And he shows that changes in electromagnet, electromagnetism, uh, cause the brain to communicate differently and that we actually have an electromagnetic, like, I don't think field is the right word, but system in our brains. Uh, another thing that Cruttenden throws forward is that there's this thing called, well, Sri Yukteswar calls it Vishnu Nabi, which is the center of the galaxy. It's also called the Hunab Ku, and uh, and I think it's the Mayans call it that. And he's saying that maybe the center of the galaxy, as we approach it changes the way that we think and like that's what the the lion the mayan long count calendar was based on because on december 21st 2012 we aligned directly with the center of the milky way which is the galaxy that we're in and if you know about how galaxies are formed and how stars are born 
the the center of the galaxy is where the oldest stars are. Um, and then he he discusses the fact that the the Pleiades occur in a lot of these myths and legends. Uh, they occur in the the Mayans, the Greeks. Um, they're, it's depicted in the Lascaux cave paintings in France, which are some of our oldest cave art. But it's also in the Bible. In one interesting quote, uh, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or lose the bands of Orion? So Crottenden thinks that that's actually a reference to procession. And he's saying, can you, can you bind the influence of the Pleiades? And he discusses there's a star called Alcyone. In the Pleiades, it's the biggest star, and he thinks that that might actually be the star that's... He, he basically, he, he thinks that the main three candidates are the center of the galaxy, Alcyone, or what's called a magnetar star. And these stars have an enormous magnetic field, and their magnetic field is actually a thousand trillion times more powerful than the sun. So you can think, if we were being close to a magnetar there might, I mean, it would vastly change the way that we would think. And, I mean, you have to imagine what a civilization would be like if they were in the the Goldilocks zone of a magnetar, assuming that, uh, you know, it would actually raise your consciousness being close to it. But that's his main, the main thoughts he has, and... Uh, that's basically what Lost Star of Myth and Time is about, is trying to actually track down what this star is. He doesn't come to a definitive answer, but he throws some forward some interesting theories. So that's it for my discussion of Lost Star of Myth and Time. But we have to consider what we are actually able to do with this information. And like I was saying earlier, there must be more myths out there. Hamlet's Mill, they said this is only an essay, even though it's 400 pages long and exhaustive. This is a first reconnaissance. We need to do more research. Folklorists and mythologists need to learn what procession is. We need to learn, we need to think about these stories as being astronomical and scientific, really, and try and track down what the scientific um implications are for mythology and folklore and legends so things that we could look for for specifically this this hamlet character look for a withdrawn melancholic character look for a promise of a return look for whirlpools look for giants specific numbers 12 times 30s being um also there's often a dog companion um, so if you, if there's a, a, some kind of dog companion, look for that. I don't know what that really is a reference to. Sirius B is actually called the dog star. Um, I don't, I don't know what the, I, I haven't been able to figure out what that dog really is, but, um, I really, I think, I mean, Hamlet's Mill, I didn't really say that it got some pushback when it first came out, but I, I definitely think that they're right. I think that's an amazing book. And, uh, Hopefully they're right and that the golden age is coming and that we're going to have better things down the line. Um, and maybe if it turns, if we know now, like procession is real. And, I mean, we know that procession is real, but if we know that the Yuga cycle is real, 
one of the main things that we have to try and figure out is how to overcome the influence of the stars so we can be in a perpetual golden age. So thanks for listening to another episode of Mythic Existence. We've shown in today's episode that advanced civilizations of the past use their stories to encode astronomical knowledge, but there has to be more out there. Luckily, we're in the ascending ages of the Yuga cycle, and we can only hope for more, for more out there. Follow Mythic Existence on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time.